Do you dream of owning a home, but feel like it's just out of reach? If only you had perfect credit or a big down payment. At First National Bank, we believe homeownership is for everyone. That's why we offer affordable options for all budgets with one-on-one -on -one support from a home loan expert who's in your neighborhood and in your corner. Get started at fmb-online.com slash own it or your local FMB. FMB member FDIC equal housing lender NMLS number 766529. The it's always the right time deal. Hey, want to go to Mickey D's for lunch? Ooh, let's go now. <laughs> but it's not lunchtime yet. If we're going to McDonald's, it's always the right time. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. There's a deal for every lunch hour at McDonald's. And there's a classic for every craving. Mix and match two for just $3.50. Like a McChicken, a McDouble, or a hot and spicy McChicken. Price and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of, of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom and we have our science fiction and science journalist friend Matt Williams here again and this time we're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive into Babylon 5. So Matt first of all how are you doing this evening? I'm not bad. I'm actually uh, recovering from uh, COVID. Oh! But um, yeah it was, a, it was a mild bout and uh, I'm now able to walk around in public again so yeah I, I, I count myself lucky yeah no that's good um yeah. well uh, dr franklin was not available to you if you were on babylon 5 i'm sure he would have taken care of it lickety split so for those of you who don't know what babylon 5 is babylon 5 is sort of like a space epic space opera if you will it's five seasons 
there's a prequel movie, there, there's been a series of sort of movies afterwards, most of which are probably uh, episodes that never quite made it. Um, and then there was also a spin-off series or two, uh, you know, there. We're, we're probably not going to cover most of that stuff, but Babylon 5 basically takes place in the future in the 23rd century, a little past the midpoint of the 23rd century, and ends sort of in like the, the 2270s or 2280s, though the main portion of it takes place between, I think, 2258 and 2262. Um, and I'm going to take a break here and let Matt fill in to see if there's any yeah, anything that needs to be corrected there. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, Babylon 5 never really rose to the point of being um, like a, a mainstream hit, I don't think, but it, it had a very loyal, dedicated following. So I recommend people see it because it is, it, it's definitely got a, a cult-like status. And um, yeah, it was really quite cutting edge for its time. It did a lot of pioneering work with CGI. It relied on the internet quite a bit to, uh, you know, for promotion and, uh, and for the fan community to get together and, and support it. And yeah, and above all, the writing was just really, really good. And it's uh, the guy's name. Uh, I think it's John Michael Straczynski. You could go by JM in the, in the credits. Yeah, it's J. Michael Straczynski. I don't know what the J stands for. Me neither. <laughs> but yeah, he, uh, he, yeah, he, he's done a lot of writing for television. He's actually he was behind a lot of really mainstream, successful shows. And um, uh, Sense Eight, I believe, is his most recent one. And he's written a bunch of books and uh, there's some graphic novels and such. And yeah, yeah, and he's actually a nice guy. I've actually managed to speak to him once or twice. Oh, that's over cool. The years. Yes. So Babylon 5, I mean, Matt touched on it. It By today's standards, the special effects are campy. Um, there's a lot of extras who say nothing. The makeup is a few generations from, you know, Star Trek, but it's not, it's not much different than like Star Trek Next Generation. In, in some ways, it, it might be no better than that. Um, there's an interesting cadre of actors in them, some that you recognize from before, some that were sort of resuscitated, like Jeff Kahanaway from Taxi fame, um, others that, and, and there was an enormous amount of guest stars and people who maybe you wouldn't associate with. So Walter Koenig or Koenig from Star Trek, Mr. Chekhov, he, he played a recurring role from basically from season one through the, the post quills. He was a, Mr. Bester, head of um, the Psycors, the Earth Psycor. Um, but instead of getting ahead of myself, I sort of. So the backdrop to Babylon 5 is that the Earth is a starfaring world. It has colonies, it's sort of in control of its solar system, maybe a little bit beyond. Uh, and at some point, it encounters a race called the Centauri, which were a giant empire, think they're very French, Victorian, British court, czarist Russia. They're, they're, they're ambiguously European. They have different accents ranging from what you consider a stereotypical French to Russian to, you know, Romanian, 
British, um, you know, so it's hard to sort of place them. Their main feature is that the, the women don't have hair and the men wear their hair sort of like peacocks uh, off the top of their head. And the longer their hair is, it, it, it usually indicates the, their status, though that that didn't <laughs> that wasn't consistently held to throughout the show. They have recently um, conquered, well, not recently, they, they conquered a, a race called the Narn, who are reptilian. Um, you know, obviously, they don't look a lot like us, and, and they held the, the Narns as slaves for like 100 years. The Narns rebelled and regained their freedom, but they're very much a weakened state trying to reestablish themselves. Those are some of your main players in, in the beginning, but the big impact is when Earth sort of gets a little bit big for its britches. It got some technology from the Mimbari. Um, it's caught up perhaps technologically in a lot of ways. They have a close relationship with the Mimbari and they, not the Mimbari, the Centauri, and they encounter or they want to find a race called the Mimbari. They are warned not to. They are told the Mimbari are a very old race, but humans are going to be humans and say, no, we, we, we took care of the Dilgar, whoever they were. Uh, we've done okay with, with you all. And, you know, we can handle a few Mimbari as well. Um, to make a long story short, the Mimbari encountered Earth uh, quite by accident. They were, they were doing a ceremony. They wanted to see certain things. Um, there was actually a ceremony where, where a character who becomes important, Delenn, uh, is going to be elevated to the ruling circle called the Gray Council or the Gray Circle. She is with, she's the favorite a student of their leader, uh, Dukat, I think was his name. And they encounter the humans who are led by someone with a, you know, the, we're, we're led to know that the, the, the captain does not have the greatest first contact reputation, uh, a bit of a hothead, the crew doesn't have his full confidence. Anyway, the Mimbari, by their culture, they greet strangers with their gun ports open, which is a sign. Basically, their hands are open. It's a sign of respect, showing you what we've got. Of course, the humans see that, and they think that means that the guns are hot, and they're going to be fired upon, and they fire first, killing Dukat. Delen goes crazy. Uh, the, the, she is the tie-breaking vote. She votes that the Mimbari go to war with the humans, and the Mimbari are like a thousand years ahead of the humans, and basically dominate everything. Um, before I jump too far ahead, I want to let Matt jump in here and, and sort of fill in any blanks that I've, that I've left out. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's a really classic space opera type thing. And I've uh, I learned over the years that, yeah, a lot of these ideas are sort of classic uh, tropes. There's the yeah cultural misunderstanding between humanity and a much more advanced race. Um, and I did like the fact that in this series, unlike Star Trek, yeah, humanity is not the, they're not being held up as an example of, you know, how we want to be. They're not ahead of the curve. They're not meeting um, nothing but um, uh, less sophisticated races or, and, and yeah, it's like they're, they're, there's a lot of the same sort of all these aliens are kind of like allegories for different parts of humanity or different historical periods or what have you. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not so obvious. And, and what they're alluding to is not all 20th century stuff. 
Yeah, definitely yeah. not. Um, so what happens is, and a lot of this is in a movie called In the Beginning, or sometimes it's called The Gathering. It's alluded to during the uh, mostly the first four seasons of Babylon 5. Um, but long and the short of it is the Mimbari have an easy way with the humans. They, you know, within, I think, two years, they're basically... Uh, you know they're they're in the human home solar system. They've they've destroyed all of the military bases. They've come across. They've they've hit all the colonies, but they're mostly targeting military objectives. Anyway, the humans finally realize that that, that they don't stand a chance. Um, only one captain, a guy named John Sheridan, has scored a victory uh, over the Mimbari, and that was by basically tricking them. Sent a distress call, started to run away, planted some nukes in. Uh, some asteroids and detonated those nukes and and hit a, a ship called the Black Star, which was the Mimbari flagship vessel. But that that's the only Mimbari vessel that was even damaged at all, and it was destroyed. But that that plays a role because there are, the Mimbari are a caste system. There's three castes: warrior, religious, and worker. And and a lot of the warrior caste, even though that's basically the only injury they suffered other than the initial engagement. Um, they have a lot of trouble letting that go, and you know uh, it's a small universe. In any event, the the president of Earth, because it's a it's a one world government, is sending a surrender. Mimbari don't care. Earth decides to says, "Hey, we're going to evacuate as many civilians as we possibly can, and everyone that's got a fighting ship form a line." And so it's called the line, the Battle of the Line, and in that is a, a guy named Jeffrey Sinclair who tries to do a kamikaze run with his, what they call Star Furies, think sort of like as a, as a, st- a stunted X-Wing fighter. Um, and it, and Delenn, who is now the, the de facto leader, um, says, we need to capture one of them to see what makes them tick. Somebody told her uh, she saw a vision from Dukat's chambers where there's another race, even older and more mysterious, called the Vorlon in there. Uh, we only learn one of their names, but there's two of them. There's Kosh, and the, who will play a, quite a role in this. Another one, we don't get his name yet, but he comes back later on. But they're sort of all Kosh anyway. Kosh tells Dukat that the humans are important. Um, Dukat posthumously, through a recording, tells Delenn this, but Delenn know, doesn't know why, and she's not quite convinced. She's not even sure the Vorlons are the Vorlons because nobody's ever seen them. Anyway, it says the truth will be right in front of you. And so when when her inferiors say, hey, who do we pick out? She points to a ship flying right at them. They hit the tractor beams. They get Sinclair. And through some sort of testing, they determine that humans have the soul of Valen. Valen is the thousand-year-old spiritual leader of the modern Mimbari, uh, he started a group called the Rangers. Basically, everything in Mimbari culture and the prophecy flows from Valen, and they find out that this guy, Jeff Sinclair, has the soul of Valen. And so humans basically are uh, spun off from Mimbari. And the first law of Mimbar is Mimbari shall not kill Mimbari. Like in Planet of the Apes, Ape shall not kill Ape. Um, and so they surrender. The Mimbari surrender, and and that's so, so they engage in helping Earth get back up to snuff. Um, recoveries in Babylon 5 take a, a remarkably short period of time. And 
the Senate votes for something called the Babylon Project, which is basically to create an embassy in space at the border of, in neutral space at the border of uh, competing, uh, previously competing worlds so that there are no more misunderstandings in space. I'm going to take a break here and Matt, let you sort of A, fill in anything I left out that's important and B, sort of (laughs) do the best you can to explain what happened to Babylon's one through four because it's sort of like that skit in Monty Python where I built a castle on a swamp and it fell on the swamp. I built a second castle on the swamp. It also fell in. I built another castle even bigger and stronger. It burnt down, then fell in the swamp. So it's it's a little bit like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the the premise is, right, yeah, this uh, a cultural understand, misunderstanding nearly leads to an apocalyptic uh, war. There was a war, it just it was it, it never quite reached the uh, proportions of apocalyptic. But yeah, the Mimbari stopped because they found out there we are linked with the humans there. There's some ancestral link and and uh, yeah, what what this all comes down to is that well at some point uh, in the in the Mimbari past, yeah, Valen was their sort of messianic figure, a guy who showed up at just the right time to help them win a war against an ancient enemy. They survived, and, and yeah, they had that little device that it, it, that he gave them that shined in his presence. And the fact that it's shining in the presence of humans, they say, oh yeah, he's got their soul. But in fact, it's like, well, actually, it's indicating they have his DNA. <laughs> and But uh, yeah, it's a holy relic, so nobody... Nobody really thinks of it that way, DNA and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, so they commit to building a space station. And this this was how the show was advertised. They're like, oh yeah, it's a UN and space kind of thing. It's like, well, that's the station's just really the setting for some um, plot that's way bigger and goes through. You know, it, it, it it's very circular. And it involves thousands and of years of of history building up to that and so yeah the first four as they explained um they're they were sabotaged because there are a lot of people who didn't want to see this project and, and all this lovey-dovey let's hold hands and talk out our differences they didn't want to see that happen so the first three were sabotaged and the fourth uh, i won't say what happened because that's really intrinsic to the plot later on but the fourth one was completed and then disappeared without a trace and nobody really ever knew what happened to it. So yeah, the fifth one is like, this is our final installment. It's this or bust. And yeah, they, um, they cut corners. They, the station itself is a little kind of rickety. It's got mechanical issues and a missing floor in one section and all kinds of stuff. Cause it's like, this is our last chance to build this station. Cause after this, we're not going to keep going. And, yeah, miraculously it survived. And so then, yeah, the, the different races there, they gather there. And things start, yeah, they're, they're, things be, become incited because it's like, yeah, they're, they're the, um, the station is basically what's standing between a lot of different wars happening, but there are several people who are plotting war and there's, yeah, larger forces at work. Right. There, there's a Game of Thrones going on on a universal scale. So the races we've touched on, there's the humans, us. 
There's the Mimbari. They are humanoid, but they are, they don't have hair. They have sort of like a bone crust that's sort of two thirds around their head, sort of above their ears and, and sort of around almost like a, uh, like a, almost like a monk's haircut kind of thing. Um, their ears are much lower and smaller. The, there's the, the, um, Narn. They are reptilian. They look scary. Um, and you're supposed to think that they're scary and temperamental, but that's because they just, uh, freed themselves from, from slavery and they're sort of an oppressed race and an aggrieved race. And they feel like they're getting ignored and disrespected while they're trying to rebuild their military and their independence. There's the, despite, despite their status, though, they still seem to be stronger than some of the other races. There's the Mimbari who are a fading empire, but still have empire-like desires, tastes, and, and status. They're like, they're like the, the, the queen, the, the prom queen, but she, you know, she's like 28. She's past her prime, but she still has all the attitude. Um, we also have the Vorlons who nobody really knows what they look like. They live in these encounter suits. We're not sure if they need them, whether they don't need them. Um, but they sort of glide and they have this mystical, uh, sense about them. There is the shadows who we are introduced to, but don't quite always see, but they're, uh, they're, they're, they're the only ones that are not humanoid that have a corporeal form. They're, they're almost more insectine, almost like black prey mantises. We rarely see individuals. Their ships are like giant spiders in the space. Um, and then there's the League of Non-Aligned Worlds, who is sort of, it's almost not really particularly important who they are necessarily, but there's about eight or 10 different races that, that, you know, play various roles and they rarely say much. Sometimes they have little disputes, but they're sort of races that are, you know, not as strong as the Centauri or the Narn, but, uh, you know, and, and somehow they've fallen behind the humans who, you know, are probably as strong as the Centauri and, and the Narn or close enough. Um, and there's also this other subclass of what we would call, Telepaths. Telepaths are, we're mostly introduced to them in human form, but most of the races have telepaths. The Narn don't for some reason. Uh, telepaths play an important role. And that's why I started with Bester, the Psycorp, because they're, they're like the EarthGov CIA kind of uh, force that's in charge of the telepaths. But they also have their own sort of agenda where, you know, they view telepaths as their own people, their own evolving race, sort of think Magneto and the mutants and the X-Men. And that's sort of, that's as close as you'll get to Bester, though Magneto is a much more interesting character. Um, there's also the old ones. Those seem to be races that are at least as old as the Vorlons or the Shadows, um, but we rarely see them. And... That, that's sort of the races. Uh, Babylon 5, as Matt was saying, is sort of, it, it's sort of on a budget. They have their own police force. They have their own commander under Earth, but there's, there's an economy. You know, people have to pay rent. The, the security force, you know, everyone complains about their pay. The soldiers have to, you know, complain about their pay. There's the security force, but there's also pilots from the Earth force and they, they sort of interact. There's not as much tension between them as you might think that's sort of ignored but there's there's you know there's kiosks there's flea markets and there's down below where where the poor people live the, and the poor of all the aliens and there's 
smuggling and smugglers and there's religious cults and and we sort of get a pretty good sense of the different religions and cultures of these different races if they were mostly monolithic or at least there was a you know a, a nominally defined number of classes touched on the caste system in, in Mimba, with the Mimbari. Uh, so that's that is the Babylon 5 station but the story is oh so much bigger. I'm going to turn it over to Matt in a second, but season one is mostly world building. You get to know the characters. You sort of get to know a lot of the mythos. Some of season one, some of the episodes are not particularly important, important, but there's kernels of things that matter. There's little things in each show that, that sort of come up later or let you understand what's going on. But some of the, I, I will say that the parts of season one are a little bit rough to watch between getting used to the, acting and the special effects and the, the, the really the scores of people who are there, but don't say anything. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think, I think I'm not sure if someone's calling you or me, but anyway. Um, so yeah. Uh, why don't you take over from here? <laughs> yep. Do we, do we lose you? Matt? All right. I'll keep going um, until he comes back. So we basically in the beginning, all of the races are sort of suspicious and at each other's throats. Um, there's a man named Mr. Morden who shows up. He, as it turns out, is on a ship that went to the Shadows home world, Zaha Doom. No one makes it back from there alive. Uh, Do you dream of owning a home, but feel like it's just out of reach? If only you had perfect credit or a big down payment. At First National Bank, we believe homeownership is for everyone. That's why we offer affordable options for all budgets with one-on-one support from a home loan expert who's in your neighborhood and in your corner. Get started at fmb-online.com slash own it or your local FMB. FMB member FDIC equal housing lender NMLS number 766529. The it's always the right time deal. Hey, want to go to Mickey D's for lunch? Ooh, let's go now. <laughs> but it's not lunchtime yet. If we're going to McDonald's, it's always the right time. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. There's a deal for every lunch hour at McDonald's. And there's a classic for every craving. Mix and match two for just $3.50. Like a McChicken, a McDouble, or a hot and spicy McChicken. Price and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer. The, the officer we said earlier, John Sheridan, his wife was also on that ship. It's a survey ship. Uh, ah, Matt, you're back. Okay, so I was yeah, going. Sorry, yeah, my my internet cut out there for no apparent reason. Uh, well, uh, it, it does that. Uh, it's the internet. Yeah. So I, I was just uh, I was about to turn it over to you, then I realized we lost you, and yeah. I started on the Zahadoom expedition with uh, Melissa, the Melissa Gilbert, uh, the Captain Sheridan's character, being lost on the same ship as Mister Morden, and I was leading up to Mister Morden. But so, but you can actually yeah. frame season one however you however you like. Well, no, that that you've done a pretty good job here so far. In fact, I, I like the comparison to Game of Thrones because it's like that's another case of classic storytelling. We've got all this politics and stuff that's going on right here, but I'm not sure if we've lost him again. But yeah, it, it's it is on a it's a yep something's going on with his internet. So I'm going to pick up with Mr. Morden, who I always found was interesting because it was so much like Modred from the, you know, the, the estranged son of Arthur. Anyway, Mr. Morden mysteriously comes back from the ship 
and from Zaha Doom, the ship that's lost. The crew was lost. Everyone's presumed dead. No one comes back alive from Zaha Doom, but Mr. Morden did. Nobody knew who he was. That's actually not his real name. Surprise, surprise. He is an agent of the shadows, and he makes... He offers everyone something. What do you want is what he asks them, and most people just blow him off. Molari from the Centauri sort of blows him off, but basically says, I, I, you know, I want, you know, the Narns to be weakened. This is all making a long story short, but basically the shadows destroy Narn ships. They, they attack Narn bases and they basically render Narn, um, rather, uh, very weakened and aggrieved. And it's hard to tell who it is. And, and Jakar and the Narn sort of have a feeling that it's, by the way, if you hear a ring, I'm sure it's Matt calling him back. But if you, um, if, you know, but they can't prove that it's the Centauri because it's not Centauri technology. It's not Centauri profiles. It, barely anyone gets back alive and, and their description is not Centauri. They're like giant screaming spiders in, in space. Um, and these are, you know, the, the shadows, the ancient enemy that the Vorlons and the Mimbari fought with Valen's help a thousand years ago, and we're to believe that the shadows are the forces of darkness, the evil ones. Uh, and that's not entirely wrong, but nothing is ever that simple. But for the first probably three, almost four full seasons, that's really what we're to believe, though we, we sort of get little in insights in between that. In the interim, you see xenophobia uh, from all sides. You you have episodes about racism, but involving a race called the Drazi, which are also reptilians. And it's, it's something as silly as one group wears green bandanas, the other wears purple bandanas, and they're given them basically at birth or at their adult uh, conference. Um, I'm going to try and call Matt again while we're doing this. Yep. Yep. Hi, Matt. Sorry. I was, I was going ahead, uh, without you, I was going to wait for you to call back, but I'm still recording everything. So I was, yeah. Once again. yeah. So I was continuing on and, um, I was sort of explaining how in season one, there's, you know, episodes sort of on, you know, the triteness of, of racism with the Drazi where, you know, they were fighting with each other to the death because some had purple, some had green. You had other episodes about misunderstandings and, you know, and religions meeting each other. You even had an episode with Michael York from Austin Powers fame. And before that, Logan's run and the, and the three and the four musketeers where he thought he was King Arthur, which is interesting because this whole thing is very Arthurian in, in a lot of ways. Uh, especially if you think of Arthur as, as almost a, you know, a sort of a combination of, uh, you know, a Moses and a, and a Jesus character uh, or, or a fighting version of those, a paladin. Uh, we even get Merlin later on in, in the season, um, in fact. And there's a reference to Merlin uh, earlier on. But um, season one, there's basically, I was at where Mr. Morden basically tried to bribe everyone by saying, what do you want? And the Centauri are the only ones that accept it. And Lando, whose house was sort of on the descent, um, sort of with, a you know, this placement of Babylon 5 was not a sort of an insult, a, a low value placement. It was not going to advance him in court. Um, 
So maybe even a little bit more Chinese court where you could advance up and down than, than some other courts. But anyway, with Lando's new, Lando's new uh, allies, uh, Lando Malari, I'll just call him Malari if I can, um, his new allies, he starts to get more approval in court and becomes more and more important because these allies are his allies and he's smart enough not to turn over control to anyone else. Um, but early on, he starts to have reservations about it with the help of his conscience, which is his, his associate Veer, who's his assistant. And the only real mention, real reason I mentioned Veer is because he's from Animal House. He's Flounder from Animal House. So when you think fat, drunk, and stupid, there's no way to go through life. It's the same actor. So, uh, so that's fun. Um, I'm going to let you pick up where, where you were going to left to leave off from because I, I don't think anyone tunes in just to hear me. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I definitely wanted to talk about the episode where Morton shows up. That was one of my favorites. Um, yeah. It's, Prior to that, we see, yeah, they're establishing what the setting is and all that, and there's, you know, like, the unresolved questions of what happened at the Battle of the Line, what happened to Sinclair. He, of course, doesn't remember much of anything about that, but he's starting to to relearn it. And then, suddenly, right. His, uh, his memory was wiped by, by, tele, by Bimbari telepaths, but it's in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Then, just apropos nothing, um, yeah, there's a bit of a crisis there with uh, Londo's got to do some royal duty that's humiliating, which is return this long-lost jewel to the new emperor, and it's just highlighting for him how my family has fallen from grace over the years, and much like our people and the decline of our empire, and yeah, then this, this mysterious stranger comes on the station named Morton, and he's talking to all the diplomats and asking them what they want. And, yeah, which is really strange. Um, no one's really sure what the point of his presence there is. And, um, yeah, but um, I, I, re I remember uh, Andreas Katsoulis, who played Shakar of the Narns, he starts belting out that... You know, what I really want, I want revenge against the Centauri. I want to see them destroyed. He's getting all visceral and poetic about it. And Morden's not the slightest bit perturbed. He's hearing all this. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then what? Like, when you're done that, what will you do next? And <laughs> Shakar's like, well, I don't know. So he says to him, okay, good night. <laughs> and that all just seemed like a waste of time to him. But then when he talks to Londo, Londo says something kind of similar. He said, I want my people to be back where they used to be. I want us to have the power back and I want to be in control of my life and yada, yada, yada. And for some reason, Morden really likes this answer. And then next thing we know, yeah, he's doing a favor for Londo where it's like the jewel was stolen by a bunch of pirates and then their ship gets destroyed by this uh, massive, yeah, like black spidery thing in space. And the jewel ends up returned to him, and and it's it's Morton is the one who delivers it. So Londo realizes, oh my God, I've got a friend with power and connections, and and yeah, and we we gradually learn because it would probably the most important part of the episode, the Delen from the Mimbari, right? The the old old race, and uh, the Vorlon ambassador, they both sense there's something really off about this guy and tell him to go away or that Delenn does that and then 
Kosh corners him in the hall and says, get out of here. These people aren't for you. And there's some kind of confrontation happens. We don't really see it, but it's like, yeah, there was some, something went down there. And yeah, and little by little, it's explained that basically, yes, these Morden here is a representative of uh, this other race known as the Shadows, and they're coming back. And Captain Sheridan, who becomes the commander of the station, he sees Morden and realizes that that was a guy who was on my wife's expedition. They were going to a border planet to investigate it. What was a dead civilization? Nobody ever came back. What's he doing alive? Right, but let's let's not get to Sheridan uh, because we because Sinclair's uh, story probably needs to be. I, I, yeah. Season one is tough because there's a lot going. I want to see if I can shortcut some of it. I mean, what we need to know about Earth is that the humans are possibly infiltrated by the shadows. Uh, there's also a lot of xenophobia and. I don't know what the equivalent of nationalism for, you know, earthism or humanism would be. Um, there's something called a home guard, which is, you know, sort of like the, the Department of Homeland Security gone mad, you know, like the Stepnaz, the, the secret police domestic, domestic surveillance. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, uh, divided loyalties there. And then you have the Psycor, which has the same things, but they have their own, uh, their old goal for telepaths as well. Um, Kosh and the Vorlon seem to know everything that's going on. They let the Mimbari in on some, mostly through Delenn, who knows some things that are going on, but not everything. And all of the characters are sort of dealing with their, their own issues. Sinclair can't remember what happened at the line, and he's not sure why he's the commander of Babylon 5, but the Mimbari insisted. Um, Delenn has to deal with her guilt that she's the one who basically was the deciding vote to start the war with the humans. She was also the one who, who established the need to end it. So she's got her own things to deal with. Um, you know, we've talked about the Narn and, and Molari and, you know, they all think that they're righteous, but, you know, I, I think they know that they've, they're, they, they both could take things too far, but Molari right now seems to have, you know, more ambition on a empire like scale. It, uh, Jakar and the Narn seem right now just to sort of want to reestablish themselves where they were. Um, that's part of season one. And, and in season one, we, we learn about Babylon 4, which sort of, it, it's tied into the planet where Babylon 5 orbits. I think it's called Epsilon 1 or something like that. And there's a giant machine there and and it, it, it can help you amplify things and, 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 and find stuff. It has weapon systems, but it, let's just say it, there's an intelligence and it's an ally um, of the Babylon mission. Um, so there's Epsilon one that, that, that plays a role. So it's a planet that's sort of a character though. It, it, it's not as important as you might think, but there's also these creatures called Zagros. Apparently there's a bunch of them. A little joke that nobody knows how to pronounce Zagros differently, um, but they all do, but they all look exactly the same and they help the machine, but they are sort of the tie between Babylon 4, which disappeared in space, but it went back in time a thousand years. And with Sinclair on it, although he's on Babylon 5, but he finds his way there and he realizes that he has to go in a chrysalis where he becomes part Mimbari, part human, and Seclair himself 
is actually Valen. So of course he already knows the prophecy. So we have this sort of circular, circular story going um, that, that the prophecy creates the prophecy. Um, and that's sort of why Sinclair is so important to it. So once Sinclair uh, goes and disappears, obviously we need a new commander who is Sheridan. Around the same time he comes on, Delenn also, now these episodes are not linear, but chronologically, I think I have it sort of close to right in what would be real time, not the time we view it. Delenn realizes she has to go through a chrysalis too, and she comes out as half-woman, half-Mimbari, the bridge to both their cultures. Um, so when Sheridan comes on board, Delenn is still very much in a cocoon. Uh, her assistant, Mr. Limbeer, what's his name? Linear. Linear. He, he's not exactly sure what's happening. No one's exactly sure what's happening because nobody knows the origins of Valen. They just know that he, he Valen was surrounded by two angels who look like Mimbari uh, with wings that were floating in, in the air. But when we see it, we, we learn that they were actually Vorlons out of their encounter suits appearing to the Mimbari exactly how the Mimbari, especially the religious Mimbari, would, would have wanted to see someone, an angel looking like Mimbari, uh, supporting this Valen. So everyone fell into line that way. And that's, we learn later on that's something the Vorlons do, that they can appear as every race wants them to appear, you know, as their sort of version of a, you know, of a messenger, a, a divine messenger, and and that they've been doing this with the younger races, well, you know, for, for millennia, maybe, maybe forever, as far as we know. So I'm sort of short-circuiting season, season one, but I, I feel like we sort of need to, because most of the story is, is, is more Sheridan than Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and it, it is interesting. They do explore this too. It's like this guy, um, he's the only successful war hero from the last war against the Mimbari. And yeah, a lot of Mimbari hate his guts. So that's going to be a bit of an issue. And Delenn, yeah. after going through this transformation, it's like, well, now um, a lot of Mimbari uh, fear and, and loathe her because... Uh, especially the warriors, because of course they had this rather ridiculous notion of the, the purity of their species. So well, they think that she's compromised that. But yeah, <clears throat> it's like slowly revealed from this. It's like, well, Valen was Sinclair. He was a human. So we have human DNA in our veins. I myself am a descendant of his, a distant descendant. So that's why the object glowed in front of me when I took the oath. And, and, uh, and yeah, and this was all done in the service of making sure the future unfolded in a certain way. And, and the only people who really know about all this are the, uh, are the Borlons. And, and they don't talk much because they're all so ancient and cryptic, right? Yeah. So season two is where much of this is explained, I remember, because in order to keep Sinclair... Not Sinclair, sorry, Sheridan. Once Sheridan finds out about Morden, he locks him up and starts interrogating him. It's like, what happened to my wife? What? Ha- how did you survive when she didn't? And and at that point, as I recall, that was when Delenn and Lanier decided we need to clue him in on a few things. Oh, and Kosh, too. Yeah. We need to clue him in on a few things. And they explain that, yes, at the Battle of the Line, we realized our species were connected. That's why we surrendered. 
we realize that we need you for what's coming. And yeah, your wife and Zaha Doom, that, that is where the shadows reside. And when their ship went there, they woke somebody up. And the only way anyone could survive was if they agreed to help them. And yeah, we know that about Morton, right? He's, he's going around doing their bidding. And then, yeah, Sheridan is told, basically, you have to let him go and play dumb because the only advantage we have right now is they don't know what we know about them. And yeah, so there, the idea there, and this struck me as really brilliant. So this ancient race is returning. They've got sinister motives. And rather than reveal themselves directly, they're working through intermediaries and they're trying to turn the younger races against each other. And yeah, that too is something that starts in season two. It's that Morden is basically pushing the Londo towards and the Centauri towards declaring war on the Narns. They have a vested interest in them winning. And that was such a letdown too. <laughs> yeah. I was, yes, I was just so sad to see that, yeah, the Narns got reconquered uh, for the time being and whatnot. And then, we just realized yeah. that they weren't these evil reptilians; that they were that they were actually the sympathetic figures. They were the victors, yeah. and that they were actually deeply spiritual people, deeply religious, and uh, and all that. And, and yeah, and then they basically yeah. got themselves nuked back, you know, <laughs> to to basically a slave class again. Yeah, that too. I thought was brilliant. I, I thought there are some very real allegorical similarities. The the people who emerged from colonization and uh, who who basically the lesson they learned from from being colonized was that uh, it's better to be the one with power the one doing the conquering than than the reverse so that's what they started doing to others and and yeah they they did seem kind of like the bad guys and Jakar seemed like a pretty uh, ruthless person but then yeah then suddenly we're rooting for them because it's like well they didn't deserve this and and yeah, the Centauri are the clearly the bad guys in this, and they're committing all crime, kinds of crimes of war. Um, whoever plays Molari is a great actor because there's a scene where he's where you see the the Centauri fleet, uh, you know, I guess with the shadow uh, backup or maybe in the lead, basically nuking um, the Narn worlds, and you see his reflection in the window as he's watching, and he's and and he's obviously. Not happy. He's he's mortified by it, um, but he doesn't really know what else to do because he wants to earn favor with the emperor. He wants to have control, and I guess at this point he sort of figured the only way I can stop something like this is to is to get in control. But you're not really sure. It, it just may be the scope of it, and like he sort of realizes he's gone too far. But but he he still is very much a centauri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the actor actually I know his name is uh, Peter Jurassic. Which, you know, I remember because Jurassic. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I believe he's, he's Eastern European. I've seen him in different roles over the years. And, and after Babylon 5, I started recognizing him in other roles, other things. And it's like, um, is he is he American and putting on a Eastern European accent? Or is he actually Eastern European and he can just sort of suppress it. And I thought, I think he's originally from like Hungary or, or someplace uh, Eastern board. And yeah, he's just yeah. a really good actor because yeah. he can fake an American accent when he wants to. Yeah, it's Jurassic yeah, that, with a K. And yeah. they and they do have sharp teeth, almost like they're almost like they're like 
fat vampires. I mean, they're 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 they're, they're like none of the Membar, none of the Centauri really look like they're particularly intimidating. Like they're, they're, yeah. so, they're sort of like French effeminate to to you know sort of you know uh, makeup and and you know. Uh, blush on yeah. the men and then the men are like peacocks and you know some they, they drink too much uh you know, and, and, and all that stuff yeah. but it's not hard for the shadows though to divide the races because the races are divided between each other and within themselves yeah. which is sort of the 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 subtext of the story is that we all we all, we all better get our shit together yeah and yeah londo was a funny kind of comedic character in the first season but then he started going down the dark path and it's like well I don't care for him much there, but yeah, he did. He's a very good actor. He managed to still do sympathy because I remember after, yeah, after they bombed the Narns from orbit, did all that destruction. He's hearing how um, he then has to impose these really punitive conditions, and he does so all mean-like and and uh, yeah. Yeah, but once that's done, he's watching the broadcaster saying that this war is over, and he seems very relieved, but then finds out his government is actually moving into border regions with a bunch of other races, and he's like, oh, crap. Because he understands that, yes, this is this is just the beginning here, yeah. And, yeah, and gradually he, he begins to become very, very suspicious of Morton, and it, yeah, it was towards the end of the war that he starts voicing these concerns to some of his uh, uh, allies in the court. But they think, oh, your associates are great, man. They're delivering on all their promises to kill our enemies and, and soften them up for, for us. And yeah, Wanda gets to thinking, it's like, if they're so powerful, why do they need us? And what happens if they turn their attention to us? And all very valid questions there. Indeed, yes, they yeah. are. Yeah, and while that's happening, you yeah, you have the unfolding plot of, well, yeah, this is this is how the shadows work. They're doing that. We need to prepare to fight them. In the meantime, there's also they've infiltrated Earth too. It's becoming clear, and so now we got to deal with treason and dictatorship that is being declared at home. Right, and not such a small yeah. point that I completely. <clears throat> skipped over is that the president who was a, of earth get is killed in an accident, which isn't an accident and his replacement takes over and his replacement is clearly, you know, more hawkish and more earth first. And, you know, and the implication is that the president was standing in the way of allowing the shadows to help earth more uh, while where the new administration um, was happy to have the home guard and was happy to let the, Psychor gain power was happy to you know, make Earth more powerful and, and appeal to Earth's um, you know I- expansionist nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yes, and how while they're preparing in secret in Babylon Five, they're getting all this information from you know growing underground resistance movement, and yeah, and they even see a recording of the new president talking with Morden, or you only hear his voice, but you know it's him. And basically confessing to everything. Oh. So yeah, yeah. Does that take us to? Oh yeah, that I think that brings us to season four, like the last really good one. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, to make a long story short, because we're we're not trying to you know replace you watching the series, but.
Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. The it's always the right time deal. Hey, want to go to Mickey D's for lunch? Ooh, let's go now. <laughs> But it's not lunchtime yet. If we're going to McDonald's, it's always the right time. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. There's a deal for every lunch hour at McDonald's. And there's a classic for every craving. Mix and match two for just $3.50. Like a McChicken, a McDouble, or a hot and spicy McChicken. Price and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Sheridan and his band of, of you know, Delenn, who, by the way, Mira Furlan's her, her name. You might recognize. She, she was a recurring character on the show Lost. She was the French woman who was sort of had been trapped on the island eternally, who was sort of insane, sort of not insane. Anyway, and Sheridan, by the way, is is Bruce Boxleitner, who was, uh, I think, uh, Kate, oh my God, I can't, Kate Jackson's husband from Charlie's Angels. Uh, but then, but then uh, I, I, he's actually Melissa Gilbert's husband in real life, which is why she was on, <laughs> on the show. Uh, I guess that's her second marriage. Anyway, Bruce Boxleitner was, uh, he was on, uh, he was the, he was on The Gambler with Kenny Rogers And he was also, oh, he was, he was on some uh, private eye show. Like, I can't remember the name of it on CBS like in the 80s. Anyway, um, not, not a particular importance, but basically Sheridan, Delenn, they're, they're head of security who's flawed also. The, the doctor who has his own sort of issues. No one cares about doctors. Um, uh, Molari, who's sort of playing both sides of the fence. Jakar, who's rehabilitated himself and, 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 you know, some others. They, you know, sort of form a resistance and uh, they're you're sort of uniting all the other worlds and all the forces with the Vorlon and the Mimbari, even if it's against Earth. And I think at the end of season three is when Babylon five declares its independence from Earth, um, which, you know, is obviously a very dramatic and there's, you know, so there's subterfuge and, and there's divided loyalties on the station and with earth force Sheridan has friends, you know, uh, no one's quite sure what happened to Sinclair. They're suspicious. People still have hard feelings about the Mimbari war, um, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think that takes us to season four. So pick it yeah. up my friend. Well, yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah, the, well, you already mentioned how Sinclair went back in time and is Valen, and the, they do that in season three, as I recall, he gets, uh, he and uh, all the other key players, like Sheridan and Delenn, and they get letters from the past written by Valen, and in English script, right. <laughs> with their names, it's like, oh, that's interesting, <clears throat> and basically, yeah, Sinclair comes to see that, yeah, um, I need to go back in time, Basically, the reason Babylon 4 disappeared was because we, in this day, um, or, yeah, we go, we captured it, we pulled it from its own time, it temporarily got um, dislodged in time, and that's why it showed up in Season 1 um, several years later, but now we need, to, we need to grab it, send it back a thousand years into the past, and they managed to succeed doing that. Because, yeah, these letters explain things to them, and Delenn shows them ancient footage that uh, explains how, yeah, at a key moment in the last time the shadows were around, 
we were gearing up for a major offensive, but they made a preemptive strike and, and blew up the space station where we were all rallying. And then miraculously, another one was delivered, which, yeah, didn't recognize it. Had somebody aboard claiming to be Valen, who was Mimbari, yet not. And so, yeah, it all comes together. It's that we're the ones who stole Babylon 4. It was taken back in time, and Sinclair was there to deliver it, and he, yeah, he, with the help of the Vorlons, he, he transformed himself so that he would look and, and be Mimbari to them, because otherwise they never would have accepted it. And, yeah, this explains pretty much everything up until the present there, how, how Sinclair could be have a Mimbari soul, or actually DNA and so forth. And, yeah, oh, yeah, the, the, the big ending was that uh, in their preparations to fight the Shadows, they start, uh, yeah, they start actually, the Shadows start getting on the move aggressively. So they're fighting them in season four. It's like, it's all going to come together now where we... Uh, where we take the fight to them, but <clears throat> yeah, the Avengers and, assemble, and the, the yeah, it, yeah, yeah, and, and what was really neat was they they throw a, a twist in there because it's like, well, up until now we've been operating under the assumption that the Vorlons are the good guys and that they're here helping us uh, prepare to fight the this menace, but in fact it's like what's well, more complicated than that? It's like the shadows they try to get people to take sides with them and so chaos to, to to pave the way the vorlons they do the same thing they they uh yeah they appear to us as angels because they're trying to influence us and they're they're trying to recruit allies as well and yeah in their case you know keep everybody sort of under control and, and calm uh, because right. they don't like disorder or chaos or anything right. like that they so, like yeah. order the shadows like chaos they're they're like the natural forces uh, the natural Duality. So the angels and demons are more like order and chaos, and we get mm -hmm. we, we get glimpses of it because uh, Kosh actually gets killed by shadows, um, but not all of Kosh gets killed. Part of Kosh went into Sheridan, and part of Kosh went into a telepath named uh, Lita Alexander, who sort of comes and goes and then comes back again. And he's and Kosh has transformed her, and she does know that part of him is inside of her, and. You know, she's become a much more, before she was a marginal telepath. Now she's like, you know, Jean, she's, she's gone from Jean Grey as a young girl to Professor X full power, you know, or, or maybe even like a little bit of Phoenix. Um, and, and the, and the Vorlam ambassador who replaces Kosh, as incommunicative as Kosh and the Vorlans are, this guy's even worse. And he's, and they say, that he's colder and meaner and harder, basically. So, you know, they, they, they give us little hint, hints of this. But, yeah, basically the Vorlons have been trying to control us in their own way, while the Shadows have been trying to control us in their own way. Uh, apparently most of the old ones have sort of gone their own way, but some have stuck around, but they're, they're, they're sort of above it all. Now, the interesting thing is, while the Vorlons and the Shadows technology is sort of far ahead of the other races... They're not that that much far. I mean, they, they, they can be hurt. It's hard. Um, the old ones who are supposed to be much, much ahead of the Vorlons and the Shadows, they're really not, uh, you know, maybe marginally, but whatever it is, their numbers are small. So it, it's not an even playing field, but it, it's sort of evened out by numbers and by being united. So that's sort of, all of that is sort of what, you know, the story of like sort of 
universe building in 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 season three, uh, while Babylon Five sort of takes a stand against its home Earth, its own people for you know a, a more universal good, um, and then season four we you know sort of see the cracks in Earth and some members of Earth Force joining the side of um, Sheridan and and Babylon Five because they are convinced it's in the best interest of Earth, but but by by no means not everyone. I'm sure I'm skipping a lot of stuff that's important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, this show is, um, it is definitely a lot like uh, um, our last uh, talk there where we were talking about Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Yeah. If you do a deep dive on it, you just keep kind of, <laughs> you kind of go down a rabbit hole because there's a lot going on there. And, yeah, I mean, and I, I told uh, Michael Strakosinski this uh, at one point. It's that this show came along for me at a very, very um, a good time. Um, like I was, I was a teenager, and it started. I thought, oh, this is a cool show. It seemed well written, and not always well acted, but definitely well written. And uh, and yeah, it introduced me to a lot of a lot of concepts that I didn't really realize were were part of uh, classic science fiction and. So, yeah, he, for me, he introduced the whole notion of, like, ancient aliens and how they could be so evolved to the point that they would appear godlike. Yeah. And, yeah, there's, and it had some really, really, really great lines, too. It but, sure did. So, I yeah. mean, so, I mean, there's a few things, like, on here that are totally in the Garden of Doom wheelhouse, other than it being a science fiction sort of space opera. But... I mean, just the term Babylon and the guy named Zagros. I mean, Babylon is, you know, Persia, Iran, Iraq, the Zagros Mountains border on them. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the ships have names like the Agamemnon. The Prometheus is one of the early ships. You know, Prometheus was the Titan that, that, that brought fire to, to the humans. Um, and, and all these things, you know, if you look for them, they have sort of their, their own sort of connections. But, you know, the Vorlons, obviously the angels, the shadows, obviously the, the demons, they were the old ones. But we also meet at some point the old one, the first one, uh, who goes by Lorien. And you could say that Lorien, well, is would, would be this universe's god. The old ones were maybe his Elohim. The Vorlons and the shadows were his children, so they were sort of his you know, his, his, his different choirs of angels, or they could be the angels and demons if you want it to be that way. Sinclair, you know, you have a, a little bit of panspermia there as well with the seeding. In season five, there's a big, we learn more about the telepaths and season five is pretty terrible, but we do learn about that the telepaths were genetically engineered in all the races by the Vorlon. So you have more of this, you know, sort of you know, Anunnaki, you know, hybridization uh, aspect that's in there and the telepaths are the evolution of man kind of thing. And, you know, we were, all, you know, the Babylon 5 always talked about stuff as it was the, the dawn of the new age of man, you know. And so there's a lot of, you know, the, the Arthurian aspect, the Christ aspects. Valen is sort of the sun and the Holy Ghost uh, while... While Sheridan sort of is the sun and the Christ figure also, at the end of the series, Sheridan and Lorien leave together beyond 
beyond the rim to the to the other universe where the other old ones are, the other Elohim. It's sort of like he ascends like Muhammad did, like Ezekiel did, like Enoch did. You know, it's like Sheridan achieves divinity. He becomes like a, you know, he basically walks with God at that point. Um, I mean, it, I, I, you know, these are the things that I see, I, I you know, which I, I, you know, which because I, I think science fiction and, and theology are hopelessly tied together, whether you want them to be or not. It's like the beyond the rim was new heavens. There was even a, a movie, which I, again, I think were just two lost episodes, episodes called, uh, I think it was called the lost tales. And in one of them, there was basically a guy who was possessed by a demon and the new commander, uh, Elizabeth's, I forgot what her name was, but it, it's not that important. Anyway, she calls a priest in to do an exorcist. And as it turns out, he really was a demon, but the demon, like because the struggle is, you know, religion's dying. There's no God, but they find out that there was, there was just a God of earth who cast the demon down to earth. And that demon escaped earth by stowing away in, in, in this guy. And, you know, they could only do an exorcism if they sent him back to earth where the demon would be bound and stuck uh, on earth. So, you know, it was always careful not to say, Hey, science and aliens replace religion. There, there's, there's a place for, for both. Um, you know, and then, you know, we never really find out where the first one came from, which, you know, again, is, you know, I think it's fine that it wasn't answered, but, you know, you, you have Kosh, who somebody called Merlin in the, in the King Arthur episode saying, next, you're going to tell me that's Merlin or that's not Merlin, but we actually have a character named Merlin later on, who is sort of like a science mage. Um, and he's almost like a Virgil or a Moses type to Sheridan, um, which, you know, uh, again, Merlin, Arthur, Enoch, Christ, they, they, they all, they all, they all blend together for me. So that was my little fun little exposition. I hope it makes sense to the audience. If it doesn't write me, I'll try to do better. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you're, you're definitely not wrong. It's, uh, it is uh, the allegorical similarities, right? And, and just, what science fiction authors have been doing since the beginning of time. And I think uh, some might think that there was a religious agenda here or there, right? But I think it was much more like because Michael Stragazinski, especially, he's an atheist. I think he recognized, like, many, many uh, authors and uh, TV writers before him. It's like there, there are allegorical similarities which are startling. And... That either tells you that, oh, maybe there's something to all this spiritual stuff, or maybe what we interpret in spiritual terms is actually just part of the reality that, that's out there and that we'll yeah. someday come across. I've been looking for oh, the quote by Jakar. Um, yeah, the he he had a, a at one point he was explaining who the first ones were, right? And um, yeah. He, he really summarized it really beautifully here. Uh, well, well, you that, look for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on this side because um, the, what happened is that Melissa Gilbert, John Sheridan's character, she mysteriously shows up conveniently after Sheridan and Delenn fall in love and they finally get married and, you know, or, or they fall in love and they're finally, you know, spending the night together. And that night there's a knock on Sheridan's cabin door and, and there's his 
he thought deceased wife, which of course causes a conflict. But he knows that nobody comes back from Zahadum without, you know, being changed. But he plays along and he takes a ranger ship, which is something that was created by the religious caste, by the Mimbari, for these sort of like uh, warrior monks that served Delenn and Sheridan. Uh, and there's these super advanced ships. Anyway, long and short, as he goes to Zahadum with Melissa Gilbert because her character, because she says that, that that's what's needed, he agrees. And he hears Kosh in his head saying, you, you, you know, telling him what to do. And basically what he does is he programs the ship to launch its nuclear reactors or whatever and crash in the capital city of Zahadum. And he jumps from a balcony and, you know, a nuclear explosion ensues on Zahadum, which destroys its capital city. It's sort of really the first blow, serious blow struck on on the shadows. And when we find Sheridan, he... He's in a cave well underneath. He fell and fell and fell and apparently was rescued by Lorien, who I guess caught him and brought him to health or whatever. And he's missing from Babylon 5 and no one's real. You know, this alliance can't, can't be held together without Sheridan. And right when it's about to fray, he walks onto the ship, onto Babylon 5, as if resurrected with, with Lorien in tow, this mysterious stranger. Uh, and, you know, of course he saves the day, but it, it's never as easy as that. But, you know, there, there's sort of the, you know, the spirit guide and the, you know, the, the, the resurrection concept, which fits right into us though, you know, it's not three days, obviously. And it's, yeah. but, uh, you know, we're, we're not really exactly sure what happened him during that fall. That's, that's never really explained. And hopefully by now you've, you've yeah. found the yeah. quote you're looking for. Yeah. The- yeah, I never really got that. It's like, well, that nuclear blast would not have spared him simply because he jumped down a hole. He, he, there's yeah. no way he could have fallen fast enough, far enough. But yeah, you know, some ancient alien rescued him. Good enough. Moving on. Um, yeah, and in fact, that too, that was a wonderful quote when he walks in and <clears throat> someone was just in the midst of saying, nobody ever returns from Zahadum alive. Oh, Captain, we heard you're dead. Right. He says, "I was. I'm better now." Uh huh. That's right. So yeah. there you go. the the the, yeah. re, the, resu- the resurrection and and the the, the you know the Christ. But yeah. by the way, he's not the first one to resurrect, and you know, so pick whatever re- religion exactly. like. And the show is a lot about transformation, both physical and spiritual. I mean, we we see the, oh, yeah. the transformation of our view of of the the Narn, but it's actually real. They uh, the, the Molari through the Centauri and. Uh, you know mm-hmm. they're a little bit slower at it, just like Molari. Delenn yeah. physically changes. Uh, uh, Sinclair slash Valen physically changes. Sheridan from a loyal, crafty soldier, almost like a Captain Kirk type, but definitely loyal uh, and, and clever and stubborn, into this leader. You know of of all races, um, mm-hmm. and our you know and. Yeah, and everything else, and then the the old race, the young races into the old races, and the old races into it's, you know, it's it's time to leave this universe, and you know, I guess start over somewhere else, you know, where you're the young ones, or you know, that that, that sort of left, you know, the the Vorlons and and the shadows just sort of leave together with their with their aunts and uncles, the old ones, and uh, I guess Lorian, the the first one, uh, follows with Sheridan. Uh, and Delenn later on, uh, again, a, a trinity there, but uh, um, I don't know. There's, there's, 
there's a lot there. There's a lot of symbolism. There's probably, I'm sure most of that's on purpose. I'm sure a lot of it is not directed to any one particular religion, though inevitably it's, it's it seems mostly, you know, biblical for, you know, mm-hmm. Old and New Testament more than Quran, more than other holy books. But uh, the, the Narn were notably Eastern. You know, there were some Chinese uh, in there and some Japanese and, you know, samurai culture, but Chinese and like sort of a, well, maybe, you know, that, there was definitely some Taoist tendencies there. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'm no expert on religion, but uh, it, I, I'm sure you could, there, there was something, there was, there was, there was something for everyone in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I did find the quote, by the way. Great. And yeah, in fact, uh, a colleague of mine and I, we want to write a book about the, about Fermi's paradox, right? The, sure. The, the, basically the question, where are all the bloody aliens, right? If they're, if they're so common, then why haven't we heard from them yet? And all the attempts to answer that over the years. <clears throat> but yeah, this, from this episode, this was right after um, the character uh, Sakai, she had had a close encounter with uh, one of the first ones that just showed up and nearly destroyed her, nearly killed her ship, and she couldn't possibly explain what she saw. It was just something godlike. And so she asked Jakar about it because he warned her in the first place, don't go there. There's stuff happens there that's weird. And, and um, yeah, and he's the one who ended up uh, sending a ship to rescue her. So... After thanking him, she asks, what was that? And so he decides to illustrate there. He sees a little ant there, and he picks it up. And uh, I'm going to try and do his voice here. Bear with me. I have just picked it up and put it on the tip of my glove. If I put it down again, and it asks another ant, what was that? How would it explain? There are things in this universe billions of years older than either of our races. They're vast, timeless, and if they're aware of us at all, it is as little more than ants. We have as much chance of communicating with them as an ant has with us. We know. We've tried. And <laughs> yeah, That was a pretty good impersonation, by the way. Thank you. I, yeah, over the years I found that I could imitate that actor. Not, not so much the other guys, though. But <laughs> Well, the actor, and, uh, for those who all know, the actor is the guy who played the one-armed man in the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. <laughs> Um, there are some other notable, uh, guest stars. I have a feeling that the show became a, you know, such a cult classic that people wanted to be in it. So Penn and Teller had, you know, uh, were were in an episode, but a very young Brian Cranston, this is like before Malcolm in the middle. This is certainly before Breaking Bad, you know, when he became one of the biggest stars in the world, he, he played a a ranger who was basically relegated to a one-way mission. I think he was only on two or three episodes and he barely had any lines, but it's a, it's a young Brian Cranston. Uh, We already talked about Michael York, who when I was growing up was probably a bigger deal than he is now. Um, and uh, and Walter Koenig, obviously, or Koenig. Um, but there were others. Uh, and, and Jeff Conaway was a bigger deal when I was growing up because he, he was he was from Taxi. He was he was like the ladies man on Taxi. I can't remember what his what his character's name was. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, you know, people even remember. I'm not even sure if people know who Melissa Gilbert was, but she was from Little House on the Prairie. Uh, you know, she was the, the little girl. So... Uh, you know, they, they, they had a, 
a, a, a fairly impressive list of, of guest stars. And I'm sure if you watch the show carefully, you'll see faces because I'm sure a lot of them were like British actors and Canadian actors. And, and you probably see them later on in shows like Game of Thrones and, and things like that. But uh, there are some people where you definitely see their faces. Are there any like notable guest stars that I'm forgetting you can think of? Um, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I'm looking at the cast list because there were there were a few people who you know I never seen before, but um, I I I don't, uh, I don't know her name, but she looks like Selma Hayek. She played a lot of vagina in Austin Powers. Uh, yeah, she, that, that that actress. Yeah, yeah. she she, she <laughs> played exactly. She played one of yeah. Molari's wives. He uh, the the Mo, yeah. the the, the Centauri have more than one wives. Uh, and oh yeah, and one of, one of the episodes was w- which one of Lando's wives was trying to kill him. And turns out the one that was the meanest to him definitely wasn't. Because why why would she bother? She 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 wouldn't try to poison him or anything. She would just tell. She would just stick him in the gut right in front of his face. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely, yeah. There, there were a few Shakespearean people, but I think you, you covered who, uh, yeah, they all had sort of prominent guest appearances. But um, one, yeah, one of the actors there, he played, uh, he played Byron. The it's always the right time deal. Hey, want to go to Mickey D's for lunch? Ooh, let's go now. <laughs> but it's not lunchtime yet. If we're going to McDonald's, it's always the right time. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. There's a deal for every lunch hour at McDonald's. And there's a classic for every craving. Mix and match two for just $3.50. Like a McChicken, a McDouble, or a hot and spicy McChicken. Price and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer. I think he's a Shakespearean actor. Um, he's the one who said, though, that the episodes, the, the content was Shakespearean. And I was like... Uh, and I thought he's bang on there. It's nothing like Star Trek, where everybody's happy at the end, right? Oh, yeah. It's always, yeah. yeah. It's like the there's an ongoing plot that's from episode to episode, season to season. There's never any any time that there's like a, a happy happy ending there or a resolution. It's like, well, now let's let's cut over to here, where the next big fight is uh, already starting to brew and. Yeah, maybe yeah. Deep Space Nine might be the, the the Star Trek that's the closest to Babylon Five. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I heard a lot of speculation that there was some kind of overlap there that Straczynski came to um, the Star Trek people and said, "This is my idea," and they're like, "No, but we're gonna do something really similar here." So, um, but yeah, I don't I don't know that that's actually true or not. I don't either. It's but like there, there were there were some. There are a lot of similarities in a lot of, I mean, but the, the concepts are so huge that, I mean, there were a lot of similarities we played in Battlestar Galactica, though there were really only two, maybe, well, you could, you could sort of say, you, you could go as far as five races in, in there if you really wanted to, uh, but there were really only two competing races, but there were more factions. I mean, that this was, you know, more, more Game of Thrones just with different races, but intra, racial struggles or interest intraspecies struggles I, I don't even know i don't even know what's the correct uh you know uh, biological term race species or whatever um there was also one of the actors i don't know his name but he he was in every season of 24 as a secret service agent i'm pretty sure he was in the west wing as a secret service agent he was like the 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 drug kingpin in the show bloodline in the in the in the sleepy keys 
And I recently saw he's an FBI agent or like a deputy director in the show, The Man Who Fell to Earth. So you've seen him a million times. He sort of has reddish hair. He always has a squint, always has sort of the same, uh, you know, military buzz cut. Well, his hair is still brown in this, but, you know, remember this is, this is, this is, uh, you know, the nineties. I think the show was on. 94 to 98 or 93 to, to 97. And then they had a few, you know, movies that they sort of cobbled together or threw together afterwards. And then there was the, the spin-off series called uh, Crusade. And of course, Merlin was a, a, an active character in that as opposed to a recurring character. And I can't remember the guy's name, but the star of that was the guy who was the office manager in Office Space. And he was also Michael Brady, Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch movies. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like Gary something. Gary Cole, maybe, is his name. Yeah. Yeah, and he played the, the main guy in Crusade? Yep, he was the captain. Huh. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I do not know the actor's name, but... Um, I think it's Gary Cole, or something very similar to that. Yeah, and he... Yeah, I remember the latest thing I saw him in was in The, uh, the Good Fight and The Good Wife. He plays some weird forensics guy who is uh <clears throat> yeah yeah he always has a job I, I think he was on veep also for a while as a as a if not a regular recurring character I, i've never watched the good fight or the good wife either of them and I, I never watched Veep, even though people tell me i should watch all of them but i won't because there's too much mm-hmm. um but yeah so you know if you're going to watch babylon 5 and i recommend you do you have to go into it knowing some of the campy and corniness of it and you have to be prepared to look past that you either have to watch it with people who also agree to look past that or watch it alone uh and just know season one is going to have some rough spots and even beyond that there's going to be rough spots but it's sort of worth it season five you're going to feel obligated to watch i'm not going to tell you not to it does sort of complete the story but the stuff with the telepasses they make you think the telepaths war is going to be much more epical than it is. And it just, it just isn't. Um, but you have to watch it, I guess, but uh, you know, I guess take your time or, or skim through it um, liberally, but I, I definitely recommend it. There's, you may see things in there that, that we didn't uh, you may, maybe with this foundation, you can watch it, you know, you know, listen, I watched it in the nineties. I, I didn't know what most of the, I wouldn't have understood what I, you know, 80% of what I was saying now, you know, in, in the nineties and probably not the second or third time I watched the show either. Um, you know, uh, and I didn't even realize how, I mean, listen, it, it looks dated, but the, the, you know, we're going through it right now with, you know, red, red America, blue America without saying anyone's, you know, pronouns or nouns, proper nouns. I mean, that home guard and, and earthism and things like that is, is you know, we're sort of experienced. And of course, we have, we hardly have stamped out uh, racism. I say we, I'm, an, I'm, I'm from the United States. Matt's actually from Canada. So I shouldn't rope him into we, though. I, I'm sure that they have their, their own issues over there. But, you know, it's, it's all over Earth. We, you know, we, we you know, you know, we, we collectively humanity have not stamped out, I, I think, uh, you know, any problem fully. So, um, uh, so anyway, is, are there any like big things that you want to add to this? Any, anything that I sort of skipped over, gave short shrift to, or that you really want to expand on that I didn't touch on? 
Well, just one thing actually. Um, and I, I just was reminded of it when we were, we were talking here. Um, in fact, I think you, you referred to it there, but, um, if anyone who's a fan of the Lord of the Rings and who is, you know, comfortable with sci-fi fantasy crossovers there, right. If, if you like both, um, yeah, this series is definitely, um, definitely something you'd like. Um, and as I recall, Michael Stragazinski did say, somebody told me this, that he, he was inspired in part by, um, by that story. Just he was. Because of, yeah. He was. Tolkien, Tolkien really did illustrate the, the epic story and how it builds and right. The kind of elements that are in there and how you can weave religious and ancient, uh, um, themes and, you know, stuff that people will instantly sort of recognize. And, uh, he really knew how to do that. And, and yeah, Stragzinski did the same thing. And he, I believe Doctor Who as well. Yep. Is uh, an influence. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's really good. It's really good storytelling. It's really classic storytelling and it's definitely got some of the really great epic space opera and, and sci-fi fantasy stuff going on. And, uh, yeah, not just for me, but for a lot of people who grew up around that time. That was like, that's how a lot of these science fiction motifs got introduced to us. And, and mm-hmm. how, yeah, what, uh, it, it what, is, what made me want to learn more. It's both simple and complex at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the whole back in time thing with the Zagros and Babylon 4, you have to really pay attention to that. And there, And there's... And the funny thing is, there's, there's lots of little things that, that the second time around watching it, you realize, oh, wow, that really was important. Or maybe I should have listened to that more. So, you know, again, I'm going to tell somebody who's watching it for the first time and maybe watching it for the second time with a different set of eyes. I understand that you're going to be <laughs> you're you're going to go through some of the, the tough times when there's the episodes with the, the drifters or a religious cult or or a smuggler or, or this or there's a monster in whole deck here, but every episode has at least one to three things in it that you sort of need to know. So just, just plug along. Um, and, and you will be rewarded. And I do think that this episode, this show will help you do that. Even if you don't get lost into all the, you know, the, you know the the Enoch and the and then the Christ stuff and the you know you know and the apotheosis or ascending to heaven kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, you can just file on the back of your mind and just enjoy the show for what it is. But um, but but that but that stuff is there, and then maybe later on you can go back and parallel. I've watched the show every episode probably five times now, and I've watched a few of the movies you know probably three or four times. Um, Unfortunately, everything's not free, but 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 Babylon Five is on uh, HBO Max. Not all of the movies are; some of them are, but uh, seasons one through five are on HBO Max. So, if you have HBO, you have access to it, um, or you can get the app. Um, they are without commercials. They're about forty-minute shows, and um, yeah, uh, that, that's that's probably about all I can say. But you know, two yeah. two two strong recommends from us. So. Uh, yeah. Matt, why don't you? T- I, I would recommend. I would recommend if you can, please watch them in order. Yeah. Because that that was a <laughs> that was a, a bit of a struggle for me. Because um, yeah, when it was uh, when it was sh- showing when I was younger, there it, it 
it, it kind of jumped from uh, one one station, one time slot to the next, um, which was kind of part of it. Yeah, being occulted, it, it kind of got jerked around a little bit for. Um, but uh, yeah, what's the Space Channel? I remember this, uh, and uh, that's pretty much the equivalent of the Sci-Fi Channel in the states. Once they picked it up and they were showing it on a daily basis, you know, just. I, I managed to see all the episodes I'd missed and all of them in order, and boy, was that so much easier to figure things out. Right? Me, me too. Yeah, yeah, it was It was the dawn of the third age of man or something, but Babylon 5, <laughs> our last best hope for peace. The Babylon yes. Project was... So there was a point where I could I could, I could recite the openings to each of the seasons. By the way, they, they changed the opening, I, I think, each of the five seasons. Uh, to reflect sort of what was going on and, and, and new cast members. And uh, and there are certain things that, that were sort of not exactly filled in. Like I, I always felt that they meant for the, the planet Epsilon One or whatever it was to, to play more of a role. As it turned out, it was sort of more of a like a giant amplifier power source antenna so that they could find the old ones and maybe coordinate certain efforts in secret. And I think maybe that helped play into the time travel as well. But I think that maybe in Straczynski's mind, that that planet was supposed to play a larger role, uh, but for whatever time or, you know, uh, you know, I think maybe a budget he decided not to, I, I'm not sure, but uh, you know, I don't know. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Let me know where you think you can reach me obviously at the garden of doom Facebook page. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Icarus MD. Um, and I'm pretty accessible there and I'm going to let Matt tell you where you can find him and, and where else you can support him because he's, he's all over the place. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. So my website is storiesbywilliams.com and that's a pretty good place actually to, to find where else I can be found at. Um, I have a podcast channel that, um, you can check out from there on ITSP magazine called Stories from Space. And, um, yeah, well, my books are available online through Amazon. Um, there, too, if you head by my website, the links are there, as well as the publications I write for, which uh, include Universe Today and Interesting Engineering. And one thing I definitely want to do in the not-too-distant future, like I started writing science fiction in the hopes that I could deal with a lot of the classic science fiction stuff that I learned about from... Uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Babylon 5, someday I want to tackle the issue of aliens and what they would be like, you know, especially when they're just so unfathomably older and more evolved than we are. And yeah, B5 was pretty good at, at sort of introducing me to some of those ideas. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely food for thought, uh, and I'm sure you'll figure out ways to put your own stamp or stamps on it. You know, the other thing is, the Lennon Sheridan's Kid is named David. I mean, David, you know, star of David. Come on. I mean, you know. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, I think that's probably it for us um, on this. Uh, I thank you very much. By the way, folks, th this is the first time that a guest has ever repeatedly asked me when we're going to do the show. Matt really wanted to do the show. So I'm sorry that I monopolized more time than I'd like. We had some technical issues in the beginning with connectivity and, and you know, that sort of 
you know, force me to fill the air with, with, you know, my version of, of the narrative, which, you know, sort of steered it that direction. I'm not sure how different the show would have been had that not happened. Hopefully not, too, not too different. Um, but I think that we did Babylon five justice in one episode. Uh, please compare and contrast this to our show on Battlestar Galactica, because I think we did a really good job there as well. Um, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I think we, deserve it. I think, you know, there are entire series and podcasts and fan fiction dedicated to these things. And I think we cover both in about 90 minutes each. So good on us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I want to thank you for being, yeah, I want to thank you for being zealous and, and persistent and being like, I want to do the show. I want to do the show. I want to do the show. Usually I've got to find the guests and chase them down. I, I don't normally have one chase me down. It was a, it was a strangely, uh, you know, a, a strange dichotomy. I mean, I don't want to call it too pleasant, but it certainly wasn't unpleasant. It was, it was different, and I, it was, it was, it was cool. So, thank you for that, everyone. Follow Matt Williams. Follow, uh, subscribe to his podcast. Um, he's teaching a, a course at the Kepler Institute as well. Um, what's that? That starts in November, right? Uh, the official date has not been set just yet, but I am. Uh, yeah, I'm talking to the. Uh, the Provo and the, the people who run it there about us setting a specific date. But yeah, this, this fall, it's uh, going to be kicking off. I think right now they're just uh, waiting for everyone to get registered. And you've got your trilogy of science fiction books, right? The, the Cronium yeah. Incident or the Cronium Event? Inci- yeah, the Cronium Incident, yeah. Um, that's the first one, Jovian Manifesto and the Frostline, Fra- Frostline Fracture. And I think I may have mentioned and uh, last time we talked, the publisher, uh, the publishing house, which published them between 2017 and 2020, they, they had to close their doors because the, they were hit pretty hard by the pandemic. But I've uh, managed to get them back on the shelf again, and they're, I even uh, polished them up a bit for that opportunity, some tweaks and updates. Okay. Um, yeah, so they're, they're still available, and I... Um, they may be uh, republished through another house in the future, but uh, I will, no matter what, keep them available because I'm not, I'm nowhere near finished writing, so I don't want any of my stuff to just not be available. Excellent. Um, yeah. I also saw, are you, are you the Matt Williams that's doing something with the Space Court Foundation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I, uh, well, I, I'm uh, a friend to them and I've written about them a few times, and uh, yeah. We've had, we, we, we've talked, uh, and, um, I've done one episode on my, on, uh, my podcast series about that. Um, there's another one coming in fact, cause they they do a lot of interesting things. So I, yep. I had to break it into two episodes. Well, there, look, our worlds intersect again, uh, because, uh, uh yeah, and it's, and it's partly due to, you know, the, the first show that you were on with my garden views and, and yes, and one of the, one of my guests was Nathan Johnson, one of the co-founders and, uh, mm-hmm. I haven't had Chris uh, Hearsay on yet, but, you know, he will. He's just at conventions now and, you know, probably in the fall. And uh, I might do some work with them as well. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. We, 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 we may find even more ways to collaborate. Anyway, yeah. uh, audience, you don't need to hear all this. I thank you all very much for tuning in. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. And we will hear you next time the in the Garden of Doom. the third Doom. age of mankind, ten years after the Earth-Minbari War. The Babylon Project was a dream given form. Its goal, to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call 
home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5. project was our last best hope for peace. A self-contained world five miles long located in neutral territory. A place of commerce and diplomacy for a quarter of a million humans and aliens. A shining beacon in space, all alone in the night. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind, the year of the Great War came upon us all. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2259. The name of the place is Babylon 5. The Babylon Project was our last best hope for peace. It failed. But in the year of the Shadow War, it became something greater. Our last best hope for victory. The year is 2260. The place, Babylon 5.
It was the year of fire. The year of destruction. The year we took back what was ours. It was the year of rebirth. The year of great sadness. The year of pain. And the year of joy. It was a new age. It was the end of history. It was the year everything changed. The year is 2261. The place, Babylon 5. Why don't you eliminate the entire non-homeworld? I see a great hand reaching out of the stuff. Who are you? President Clark has signed a decree today declaring martial law. These orders have forced us to declare independence. That's why people get off their encounter-suited butts and do something. You are the one who watched Zahadu who will die. Why are you here? Do you have anything worth living for? Think of my beautiful city. Giants in the playground. Get the hell out of our galaxy! We are here to place President Clark under arrest. That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Who'd like another slice of free turkey? I'd love a slice of free turkey. White meat, please. Where'd you get this delicious free turkey? BJ's Wholesale Club. It's a free butterball turkey. Free drumstick, anyone? I want a wing. Are the wings free? The whole turkey is free. Get a free butterball at BJ's when you spend $150 in one transaction in club or on BJ's.com between November 1st and the 10th. Your free coupon will appear in BJ's digital coupon gallery beginning November 12th. BJ's. Absurdly simple savings. Go to BJ's.com slash free turkey for details. 